So, last week we, or not last week, two weeks ago, the last time we were together, we covered chapter 8 in Esther on how um, the heading that the ESV gives, Esther saves the Jews. So we have the, the counter decree issued by Esther and Mordecai and given the, the seal of approval by Xerxes in which the Jews are now able to defend themselves from any attackers that they might have on that day that in the month of Adar. So we explored some themes in this. Uh, another gospel representation in the book of Esther about God issuing a counter decree of life against uh, a decree of death that has been issued. We also saw the, the Great Commission from, from Esther because those uh, in the kingdom were now declaring themselves Jews. And so now, in today's portion of the narrative, we're going to cover the, the first half of chapter 9. It's going, to be, it's going to be somewhat difficult to tackle because in the past lessons and previous portions of the Esther narrative, we've been able to make some connections in, you know, to approaching the throne of grace or the Great Commission in the book of Esther or how the gospel is presented in the abated wrath of the king or, like last week, God issuing a counter-decree of life in opposition to an irrevocable decree of death. But this chapter is different. This chapter, and especially these 19 verses that we're going to cover today, is all about violence. And most of it describes a justifiable self-defense violence, but we're going to see a particular ruthlessness on the part of Esther later on. And even worse, the author is not going to provide any sort of commentary about the morality of any of the actions in this chapter. So we're going to tackle these tough issues today. But first, as we've done for 10 weeks now, let's set our bearings about the significance of the events and the context of all of redemptive history. God has now, at the end of chapter 8, through his agents Mordecai and Esther, given his people a way to preserve themselves. And why is this important? Once again, the Messiah is yet to come. The Messiah must come from the Jews so they cannot be annihilated. So let's read on and see how the line of David is preserved. Esther 9. Today we're going to be verses 1 through 19. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The, The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshadatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Pormashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. 
That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were, also, who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And so the fateful day has finally arrived. Adar 13th is here. Eleven months after Haman had cast lots to determine the day of the destruction for the Jews, the people of the kingdom are legally allowed to attack the Jews and plunder their possessions. But the Jews are allowed to defend themselves against anyone who attempts to attack them. And in turn, legally, as far as the Persian kingdom is concerned, the Jews are allowed to plunder the goods of the attackers. And then we come to the day of civil war. We have a great reversal on the day of warfare. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. We're told that all of the officials of the kingdom aided in the defense of the Jews. Why? Because the fear and respect of Mordecai had fallen on them. Mordecai is now seemingly the most powerful man in the kingdom, and his power is still increasing, because it says in verse 4 he grew more and more powerful. So in total, 500 men in Susa are killed, along with 75,000 across the entire kingdom in this one day, which is a massive death toll for a single day of warfare. The author is very careful to mention three times that the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. Now, keep in mind, they had every legal authority to do so. The royal decree said that the Jews were absolutely legally justified in taking any of the spoils of the warfare here, but they did not. The author's very clear in pointing this out. So this, this makes me believe that the Jews of the kingdom did indeed at least understand uh, this aspect of Scripture when engaged in a version of a holy war, which is what this was. God forbid plunder to be taken whenever holy war was being engaged in. There was to be no personal profit because the destroyers were acting only as agents of God's wrath and not for personal gain. So we see this in kind of the prototypical way in Genesis 14. It's in Genesis 14. Here. In Genesis 14, verses specifically 11 through 24, we have Abram, before he is named Abraham, we have Abram 
fighting on the side of Sodom because we have all of the city-states coming up against Sodom. And remember, Abraham's nephew Lot lives in Sodom. So Lot has been, has been captured by some surrounding kings um, from these city-states. And so in Genesis 14, starting in verse 11 and reading through verse 24, verse 11 So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to, to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So after the victory, what does Abram refuse here? He refuses the riches and splendor of the world offered to him by the wicked king of Sodom. But what does he accept He accepts here what is a precursor of the Lord's Supper. He is blessed by the simple provision of bread and wine and by an accompanied blessing by a priest of God Most High, king of what will become Jerusalem nevertheless. Abram sets a pattern for God's people here that focuses on rejecting the plunder of the conquered wicked people and accepting the simple blessings of God. Abraham, in turn, actually offers a tenth of everything that he has to Melchizedek. So he is blessed by the simple provision of bread and wine from a servant of God most high, and he rejects the riches and splendor that is offered to him by the wicked king, the plunder of the victory that Abram just had. So Abram sets a precedent here for God's people going forward. We see this further and as a more explicit command from God when Joshua and the Israelites conquer the land of Canaan. They were to to devote every living thing to destruction, and all the spoils of war were to go into the treasury of God. They were to take absolutely nothing for personal gain, and we all know what happened to Achan for violating God's command. And an even more vital connection to Esther, over in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul... Saul is king of Israel, and the Lord commands Samuel to tell Saul to destroy the Amalekites and all of their possessions. And we've explored this in previous lessons, 
But remember that it's likely that Haman was a direct descendant of the king of the Amalekites at this time, Agag, the king that Saul refused to kill. Now Samuel comes and kills him later, but Saul refused to kill the king. And also Saul disobeys God in quite a few other ways. How did he do this? He failed to devote everything to destruction. He kept what was appealing to his heart. And then in verse 19, Samuel has a specific accusatory question to Saul. He says, why then, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? Other translations say plunder there. Why did you pounce on the plunder and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then later on adds his famous imperative, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, because Saul gives a very lame excuse after that. Obedience to God and fighting on his behalf should never be for the purpose of personal gain and material satisfaction. It's clear throughout all of Scripture for this, and it seems that the Jews of Persia actually succeed in this regard. They did not put their hands to the plunder whenever they were defending themselves against those who sought to do them harm. And so moving forward in Esther, we see that the ten sons of Haman are, are killed. Uh, they're hanged later on. They're killed first. Uh, they're killed specifically so they do not carry on their father's evil legacy, further fulfilling God's promise to destroy all of the Amalekites. And so this kind of seems questionable to our modern ears, but it's very common practice in ancient warfare to, to suppress any vengeful coup attempts to kill the descendants of someone that was um, seeking to do the king harm. So, But then, you know, that might be somewhat troubling to us, uh, given the context of the time, maybe not. But then I think we do have somewhat of a troubling paragraph in verses 11 through 15 in Esther chapter 9. One of the, the author's main purposes in writing the book is to explain the origin of the Jewish festival of Purim, which we're, we're going to encounter next week when we finish the book. And so there's, at the time, there seems to have been some debate on whether Purim should have been celebrated amongst the Jews on just one day, or it should, should it be spread across two days. And here is actually the author's explanation of the discrepancy. Esther had requested an additional day of killing in the capital of Susa. And so this portion of the story, this paragraph in verses 11 through 15, is really just about the ruthlessness of Esther. The Jews have, it seems, adequately defended themselves on that one day that they were allowed to do so on Adar 13. But Esther requests another day for it to happen in the citadel. For some reason... We don't know, but she is requesting that an extra day of bloodshed take place. She, she doesn't give any reason for it, and most commentators see this as a, a morally troubling account on the Esther's part. Esther is, she's no longer this timid Jewish girl that she was at the start of the book who was just taken into the, the king's harem. She has, seems to have no problem wielding her power now. And even more concerning for us, makes, makes me more uncomfortable, is that the author fails to insert any sort of moral commentary for Esther's actions here. We're left completely in the dark. If anything, it does highlight that, like so many of other God's chosen leaders detailed in Scripture, wielding power is incredibly dangerous. No one in the Old Testament was truly capable to wage true holy war on behalf of the Father in a pure and completely holy way. 
Thank God that we have a pure and perfect warrior executing divine justice on the behalf, on the behalf of God's people. His name is Jesus. Praise the Lord for him. And so that's kind of the conclusion of the overview of what we've seen today. And a couple of two points that I wanted to kind of draw out for that we're going to focus on for the rest of our time is the first one is without a moral standard, we are completely hopeless. And then the next one, a bit disconnected from that, is our God is a God of great reversals. So first of all, without a moral standard, we are completely hopeless. And so we made the point many times now that God or more accurately, literary depictions of God are completely absent from the book of Esther. And in this particular chapter, we're detailed with some events that could leave us a bit uncomfortable, morally speaking anyway. The, the single day of killing on Ador 13 was somewhat was justified, I think, on self-defense grounds, but the specific request on, for a one day of, of, a, of an extension in this capital of Susa by Esther at least leaves me with some questions about the morality of the request. And as a side note, Mordecai also seems to be ruling in a more powerful way, if not a rough way, a rough way, for the people of the kingdom have some sort of fear of him. At least the, the governors in the kingdom have some sort of fear of him. And then we are presented here with some actions of the heroes of the narrative that one could argue are wicked. I'm not going to make a judgment there, but I think a, at least a, an argument that we could hear out would say that these, some of the actions in this chapter are wicked. Even if the outcome is noble, remember ends do not justify means. And so we are presented these things in the narrative without any shred of commentary on whether these actions were upright. See, one of the things that confirms the validity of the Bible is that it does not shy away from detailing the flaws and the moral failures of its heroes, with the exception of Jesus, of course, because he had none. But in other cases, we're given specific details about the moral failings of the great people of God. Abraham can't seem to learn the lesson to not tell people that Sarah isn't his wife. Moses strikes the rock in a display of anger and pride. David breaks a litany of commandments during the ordeal with Bathsheba and Uriah, and the rest of his life is in shambles afterwards. Solomon is a complete mess after building the temple. And even the few, the very few good kings that, that the kingdom of Judah had were often rebuked by prophets. And then don't, don't think these details are only confined to the Old Testament either. Jesus is constantly rebuking his disciples, especially before Pentecost. And even after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, Paul has to rebuke Peter for his hypocrisy when dealing with the circumcision party. The fact that the Bible does not always cast its heroes in a positive light, absolutely, does a great deal to confirm its validity. Could you imagine something in the Quran saying something negative about Muhammad? It doesn't. That, among all the other problems with that demonic book, is a giant red flag that it cannot be trusted. So with all those previous examples of leaders of God's people, all of their moral failings, we know that they're moral failings because they are explicitly rebuked by God, sometimes through visions or through prophets or other things, or the author of the text insert, inserts through divine inspiration how that person has failed morally. But we don't have this in Esther. Remember, God is seemingly completely absent from Esther. He's not mentioned at all. 
All we have are the details about the events as they occurred and no commentary on whether they are moral, justified, upright, or righteous. And I don't know about y'all, but that kind of makes me uncomfortable, which makes me very thankful for all of Scripture. It makes me thankful for the totality of the Word of God. The absence of these things in the book of Esther makes me appreciate all those places in the other 65 books of the Bible where God has told us what is good. I'm very grateful that our Heavenly Father has told us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with Him. I'm thankful that we've been given the parameters for holy living, to love our God and to love our neighbor. Not only that, God has explicitly told us how to do these things. He's given us ten specific ways to live in a morally upstanding way and to bring honor to Him. But Esther leaves me uncomfortable. Especially when she spends a night unmarried with an uncircumcised pagan king. Especially looking at the pride of Mordecai. Especially when Esther authorizes non-self-defense killing. And especially when the author hasn't told us that if these actions are seen as righteous in the eyes of the Lord. But the only reason it makes these things make me uncomfortable is that we have a moral standard from which to draw. Without a moral standard, we are completely hopeless. To thank the Lord that he did not leave us in the dark. Left on our own to figure out how best to live, how to best treat ourselves, our neighbors, and our God, every single person in the world would be a walking example of Romans chapter 1. One of the primary reasons that the world seems to be crumbling around us right now is that we're inches, inches away from the logical conclusion of postmodernism. When we, no longer, when we are no longer anchored to a moral standard, the world devolves into chaos. It has to. When each person is left to develop their own truth, society reaches the gutter that it's in today. Moral relativism is a cancer. It's a hurricane, and its path of destruction, in its path of destruction, it has left the modern sexual revolution, the abortion industry, the filth and entertainment, the rampant materialism, hate of our neighbors, and the gnashing of teeth at anything that alludes to a being that is perfect, just, righteous, and merciful. The world hates to hear this, and that is because we all have our own truth. We don't have a moral standard. The only antidote to this poison is moral absolutism and the moral absolutes that are found in this book. That's the only thing that is trustworthy. It's the only antidote to it. And in a lot of ways, our lives and the world in which we live are really like the narrative of the book of Esther. We aren't given divine commentary about the morality or anything else that happens in our world. But praise be to God that his word remains true and forever will remain true, providing us with a moral framework through which to see the world. And we thank him that he has not left us in the dark. We have what we need to live a moral life. And the second point, our God is a God of great reversals. There are reversals all throughout the book of Esther. A few of them being, which we've seen many times before, there's actually a book all about the reversals in the the book of Esther. I'm not going to reference it, but it's out there. Esther, first one being, Esther expects to die entering the king's presence, but she is granted whatever she wants in a great reversal. Mordecai Mordecai is quickly reversed from being in sackcloth and ashes to being paraded around in royal robes. 
Haman, at breakneck speed, went from highly exalted to hanging on his own gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, less than 24 hours. These and others are building up to the great reversal of the book of Esther in chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1, the line of David is in jeopardy. The Messiah might not be born, but we all know that that couldn't happen. Now, verse 1, we'll read it again. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Of course, the Bible is is filled with stories of great reversals. Let's look at at two songs of two women in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have the song of Hannah. The prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted from the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very, so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. After a great reversal in Hannah's life, from being barren to bringing forth Samuel, She sings a song of praise and a prayer of praise, exalting God. And then specifically in verses 4 through 8, she tells of how God is a God of great reversals. Also in Luke chapter 2, in Luke chapter 2, we have Mary singing a song of praise in in her Magnificat, rejoicing over the coming Savior, all while being revolutionary, in its concern for the poor and the despised and the rejection of the rich and the proud. So Luke chapter 2, verses 46 through 55. Luke 1, sorry. Yeah, Luke 1 is a home. That's not right. Yeah, Luke 1. Luke 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in his remembrance of in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Specifically, over in verses 52 and 53, Mary talks of God's reversals for those who are low. And then our Lord, speaking on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes are all a list of reversals for those who are humble and broken. Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, are hung- who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for, there shall be sat- for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the list of Beatitudes here are a list of great reversals that God gives to those who are humble and low. Not to speak of the reversals in our own lives. When we were enemies of God, he in his marvelous grace rescued us from the pit of hell. Oh, how our, of how our lives, of how our lives are completely reversed when we give them up for the sake of Christ. Completely reversal of our lives. How our orientation should be completely upended when we finally realize the surpassing riches of his glory. And all of this is part of the great redemptive plan of history. None of these reversals surprise our Heavenly Father, and they are all according to His good pleasure and for His glory. But every single one of them is completely useless without the greatest reversal of all, the resurrection. Dead men are not supposed to rise. Bodies who are most assuredly starting to decompose are not supposed to exit the tomb. None are worthy to ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father except one. Because he is worthy. This is the greatest reversal in all of human history. Our Lord rose from the dead. We celebrated Easter last week, and nothing wrong with that. But don't forget, brothers and sisters, that each and every Lord's Day that we gather together is a celebration of the risen Christ. And because he is risen, we have hope. We have hope that these decaying bodies are only temporary. We have hope that there will be a place of no more tears We have hope that no matter how low the lowest of the low in this world fall, that Christ is there to lift them up if they humble themselves before him. And most of all, we have hope that we will return to something even better than the Garden of Eden, that we will be resurrected and dwell in perfect communion with our God, and all because of the great reversal that Jesus Christ has indeed risen. So therefore, brothers and sisters, let's leave this place move over to the sanctuary with our prayers being fervent, our voices strong, and our hearts joyful to go worship our risen Savior today. That concludes the lesson.